wavering when we say Black Lives Matter. Okay, so welcome to the Truth to Power Show and Ready for Brooklyn. I'm your host, VJR Nathan. And with us today is co-host Scott Raven. Yes. Hello, hello. Welcome, Scott. How welcome. you doing, VJ? Doing well, doing well. Um, oops. So our special guest is Kira Stevens, who is a writer and visual artist originating from uh, Wilmington, Delaware. She began her poetry and spoken word journey in New York after graduating from the University of Maryland in 2017 with a bachelor's of science degree in psychology. She was an intern at the Bowery Poetry Club and was a featured performer in various events around the city. She's just recently graduated from New, New School with um, Masters of Fine Arts in Creative uh, Writing Poetry. Forthcoming chapbook, Highly Noted and Other Poems, will be published in January 2022 by Lit Press. Her work has appeared in such journals as Prometheus Dreaming, The Furious Gazelle, Beyond Words, Literary Magazine, um, Poetry Leaves, Delaware Bards, Poetry Review, and more. <clears throat> Welcome, Kira. Hey, thank you for having me. We just, uh, let me see if, okay, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. So welcome. Can you hear me now? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> Double thanks for having yeah. me. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so how are you doing? So let's, let's start the conversation <laughs> off a little bit about your poetry and, uh, I'm going to check the volume levels, but, uh, why don't you talk about your poetry and your spoken word versus the page? Might be a good place to start. Like you, you have a lot of experience in spoken word. Now you're publishing the, the manuscript and tell us a little bit more about your process, yeah. Let's see, where can I start? Okay, so um, one of the main things that I started to learn when I was getting my MFA is uh, for the page versus versus uh, for the stage, um, you have a lot more opportunity on stage to show like the subtext and like the subtleties with your face and like the in like the tonage and the rhythm, etc. And for the page, I. Um, I was a little nervous when I started to um, only do stuff for the page because you don't have all those avenues to go about doing that. And so one of my favorite things um, is called enjambment. And that's like basically you are ending the line in a specific part that makes the next line um, kind of highlight the uh, meaning a little bit differently. Mm. And so your emotions while you're going through the lines are... Um, changing along with the the verbiage and what you're hearing in your head. Um, I think not to drop Shakespeare, but I think that um, a lot of like his sonnets incorporate a lot of uh, enjambment and like I'm like starting to learn about form and everything like that, but I'm not very good at following rules. So uh, yeah, that's <laughs> that was my experience with enjam and jamba juice. I was thinking <laughs> just kind of like you know you have the enjam and then the <laughs> bajuice on the other line. That's or one of my favorite like things that. about you, Scott. Is like <laughs> from the moment I met him, he just started throwing all these words together, and every single thing that he says is a poem. <laughs> the the yeah. portmanteaus. Uh, uh -huh. I, well, well, <laughs> ju just to piggyback off what you're saying, something that I really enjoyed is is. Uh, you know, I've read some of your poetry, but I've also seen you uh, on stage. Mm -hmm. And there's, you know, something there's like a quiet power. I, I, I where there's you, you don't, you know, there's no raising of your voice or or histrionics to bring back the straight <laughs> Shakespeare. But you're able to command the attention of those that you are delivering to. And I don't know if you're aware of that or it's just <laughs> it's just people will listen. Um, Mainly because you know you're connecting things from so many different areas, yeah. and then they're able to come back. But uh, is that you know conscious? Like 
you seem pretty controlled up there. Where I'm so tense all the time. <laughs> I literally don't know how to exhale. That's my whole thing. When I first, <laughs> my first time I ever read a poem in front of people when I showed up to Bowery, um, our friend Mason, he was hosting the show. He reached out to me after and he was like, I love your deadpan style. Like, and I was like, what does deadpan mean? <laughs> and I looked into it and I was like, oh, it's because I'm trying not to, to waver as I'm speaking because I have anxiety and all of these things. And then I realized that the juxtaposition between like all of the, the erratic things that I'm talking about coupled by like the the flat tone makes it more uh, palatable if that makes mm-hmm. sense mm-hmm. um and it keeps people it's like a yeah did i use the word juxtaposition it's yeah. kind of like that so when people are experiencing it right. they're able to more focus on the words instead of like how i'm uh going up and down and yeah yeah so so you, I, I, my my mind goes to dead pan and then yeah. dead and pan a pan that's dead or, or peter pan or, or pan's yeah. labyrinth or something like that so i feel things you know they connect through language but you had made you had said something of, of how other kind of words uh and and or the interconnectedness of, of all things mm-hmm. that it's not knows not just by language for you you say it's it's thoughts and some other mm-hmm. things but can you can you go into a little bit of your philosophy of how all things are connected yeah so i studied psychology in my undergrad and i've always been very interested in subtext um of the little things behind what you're saying and so um let's see how i can summarize this without uh ranting a lot every single thing that you are um thinking about or not thinking about actively probably has some sort of relevance to what you're feeling even if you don't want to feel it or whatever so like my writing process is I, I carry around an ugly notebook, like one of those those marble notebooks that you have in fifth grade. And um, I'll just write down something very quickly if if it feels like it's uh, perpetuating throughout my brain and kind of distracting ADHD style. And um, once I fill up my notebook, I'll transfer it onto a Google Doc and then I'll piece it together like a puzzle. And in doing so, that's when I'll realize like what I've been like uh, cogitating or processing behind the scenes of my own uh, active thoughts. And then uh, you you realize like things that you pay attention to without really paying attention to it. And so you start to pick up on the things that you actually seek meaning in, like what you're reading. And um, it's kind of like the literary version of like your vibe attracts your tribe. Does that make mm. sense? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate that. And I appreciate yeah. how you were talking about um, – Word vomit, like being able to like, you know, spell all the stuff in your mind. And I think that really connects with like having that connection between the, the unconscious and the conscious, this conscious mind, the conscious mind and the collective unconscious, so the deeper mm-hmm. levels of psychology. And mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on that? Also, you mentioned about mother nature mm-hmm. and how it connects to the ecology of, uh, of mm-hmm. the mind. Yeah. And so mother nature is what, what did I say? It's like a tangled, uh, uh, ecosystem of roots yeah. and fallen leaves, etc. Like the American lawn, it's not meant to be perfectly uh, mowed down and structured. So, like with form, that's why I was struggling in school. I was like, I don't want to. I don't like following rules. Yeah. And so, um, when it comes to planning work, it just it feels forced to me. And so that's one of my favorite things when I'm working with um, people that don't think that they're creative. It's literally just just write what what my dad used to say was let the madman loose and then edit later. Mm. Who was it that like Ernest Henningway that said like, write drunk, edit sober or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so not necessarily drunk, but just like uh-huh. uncontrolled or unfiltered. Uninhibited. Yeah. Yeah. You accept 
the content that's going to come out of you and be blindly like not tender with yourself, but just non-judgmental of like what your uh, mind is feeling or uh, make an association and try to figure out what it is that you are like either repressing or uh, just processing in the background. It's like uh, the noise, like the, the background noise of your own self. If you are able to splatter it onto the page. You can maybe organize it and make it pretty. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and we all have, you were saying about how we all have that inha- inherent play. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, then in other words, if we think about like people having talent mm-hmm. and all that, and, and uh, you kind of have the subversive view of that, mm-hmm. which I really appreciate. I think that, you know, artists not tenderize and they get into that creative state of play. Mm-hmm. They can really access those, those mm-hmm. states of mind. Yeah. Yeah. Who was it? Um, I think it was, was Freud that like poets are like uh, basically just children that they've just mastered the art of summoning their own uh, playfulness and like yeah. noticing what you notice. Like children are blindly, blindly honest. They scare me, but like also they're <laughs> natural poets. One of my favorite things uh, is seeing how kids combine words together. Like um, I'm working in a preschool right now. It's, it's, oh, nice. it's very interesting. <laughs> yeah. They call a hand sanitizer hanitizer yeah. or their, uh, uh, their knees, their uh, leg elbow uh, and things nice. like that. Uh, and I love it so much. And uh, I, half the things that they say, I'm like, you know, you're a little poet, right? That's <laughs> what you just said. And uh, so it's kind of interesting that I get along with them so well, but also I treat them like little adults and they have to kind of keep me on track. And I, I write down half the stuff that they say, and they've inspired a couple of my poems. Nice. So, <laughs> yeah. So, so we're talking a lot about a wordplay, kind of playing with, with language. Mm-hmm. But is, is there something to be said about playing with emotion, even? Um, I, I know you mentioned kind of the zooming in and the zooming out mm-hmm. as well. And oftentimes, you know, I mean, if you're too close to something, it, does, it doesn't come out as, as articulate sometimes. Mm-hmm. But how do you make that? How do you find that balance between letting in you and letting in what's really going inside you, as well as still maintaining that playfulness? Let's see. How can I process that? Like zooming in, zooming out. So if something's too intense, zoom in. If it's if it feels obscure but it's still there, like a little gadfly buzzing in your ear, mm. then you can zoom in on it. Um, that's typically when I bring in other art forms. So if like I'm struggling with really f- trying to articulate what it is that I'm experiencing that's when I'll go into more of like a visual medium and um, either just sit in silence and stare at one of the pieces that I'm working on and notice if I'm like drawing really strict lines. It's like, all right, there's some tension here. Or if something's like more flowy or if I'm just in a mood where I just want to destroy something, it's clearly that there, there's always a meaning behind the action I've noticed. And um, one of actually one of my favorite things to do with other people, especially those that say that they're not creative so I love to have conversations with people while doodling, like just mm. just stream of consciousness. Don't think about it. Don't even think about the fact that you're drawing. And every time that I see that somebody's starting to do something on purpose, if they start to draw a turtle, I'm like, all right, it's time to mess it up. You can't. Okay. And that's not allowed. And then always rotate the paper a little bit and like just always kind of keep refreshing your perspective to make sure that um, whatever is there has the opportunity to kind of slip in through the, cl- the cracks and uh, make itself seen without like having to be fully understood yet. Mm. And uh, uh, we call them brain babies. That's my favorite. Like half of my artwork is like foundationally brain babies I've made with loved ones or people I just met. I'm like, you're doodling with me. Nice to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> 
Great, great. I love that. Yeah. yeah, I liked I liked how that kind of like dovetails with uh, intentionality, like mm-hmm. you know, letting go of intentionality is the practice mm-hmm. here mm-hmm. Um, to be able to like just allow the process to unfold and then like see what comes up. Mm-hmm. But then uh, also this is important. You mentioned the importance of intentionality in other, I guess, in other instances mm-hmm. where we're in life in general, I think, right? Yeah. So there's either you don't have any intentions and you just allow yourself to see what your brain wants to pay attention to, or if there is the exact opposite, such as this past year when my grandmother passed away, I uh, really, really did not want to process it. And mm-hmm. noticing that kind of repression and that, um, what's the word, uh, aversion to paying attention to those feelings, it, it, it's physically, it burdens someone on you. And so, it's almost like a very uh, excruciating meditation to have to sit down with your thoughts and to write out the process, the grief process and um, uh, being able to tune out the, the buzzing of like, I'd rather think about this or I'd rather think about that or rather any, anything else is uh, it's like muscle building for your brain. It's, mm. it's very difficult. So it's changing that mindset also has been a very big challenge for me for this past year, but it's it's going. It's, I'm working on it still. I'm not exactly. It's not perfect yet. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, if I, if you don't mind me personalizing a little, it, in in what ways were you creative with your grandmother? Oh my goodness, she she hated my poetry. <laughs> I love that's my favorite thing about her. She absolutely she did not like it because she spoke six languages. Oh wow. Or like almost six. She forgot a lot of bit of a German. She uh, was a very strict, scary Russian lady, but she loved anything beautiful. She was uh, an iconographer. She, like the Russian Orthodox, uh, like paintings of the Mother Mary, which is a very, very meditative, like very strict rules. And But the thing that's interesting about it is that she never got taught it. She just figured it out on her own, which is kind of like parallel to my art process that I've never taken any like art lessons or anything. I've just kind of followed my instinct. So that them being such different art forms but having the same uh outcome of some sort mm. uh, or origin um in terms of the origin point it, that really bonded with the, bonded us um half of the nights that i'd be working or writing one of my favorite things to do would be to go and sit in her room on the floor and like argue with her <laughs> and we would just like talk all night about philosophy or aliens or why she hated my piercings and things like <laughs> that um she she was the most uh powerful uh gentle person i've ever met um and she went up to 99 years old she would i had all my art in my basement and she would come downstairs very very slowly the process of getting her downstairs and i had a huge mess obviously because my studio and who i am as a person um she would take her cane and clear a path for herself and be like here you are you are disgusting but then she would look at my artwork and that's where we we bonded and then i would write down a lot of the stuff that she would notice in my work and that inspired a lot of my poetry and she pointed out a lot of things that i did not do intentionally but um made a lot of sense and it ended up putting some things together for me that i had not seen until she did and then when we would get her back upstairs she was i'm crawling like a puppy she would all fours up that's one of my my favorite memories you know yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I really love your vision of creativity and like, I really appreciate how, you know, we kind of like, uh, piecing together like our, our psyche, mm-hmm. you know, the psychology of it mm-hmm. and how like the, uh, it's almost like, it's like, like channeling a little bit. Mm-hmm. It reminds me a little bit about summoning yeah. a demon. Yeah. Like a fun one. 
Yeah. They're colorful, squiggly demon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, having all, as much um, gentle mania. Uh, I think one of my favorite things that uh, somebody described my, my written work with uh, was tastefully neurotic. I think that was <laughs> my favorite. And yeah. Then, uh, what was another one? Like pleasantly anxious. Or no, somebody described me as the happiest anxious person they'd ever met, and I was like, "That's that's pretty, that's pretty spot on." I think I, I like that, and I'm going to put that on my resume. I like that too. So it it, can, it goes through a positivity or or even yeah. an optimism. Yeah, yeah. It's just blindly welcoming yourself to be the what's the word like shameless about like what your situation is, and I think that people witness that, and then they put their guard down. Um, a lot of my friends have commented um, how it's not, it's peculiar to them that I'm very very open about like mental illness and um, my past with uh, in college I was very very much dealing with some substance abuse issues and a lot mm. of the tension from that time period is what's inspired a lot of my work but I think that it's really important for artists to own up to what they've gone through or what the uh, what's the word troubleshooting is going on in their brain so people can be like oh. Okay, that is that is a not normal thing, but it's it's not. I'm not alone with my own experiences and kind of like mapping out like here. Here's how I'm processing this. You are also weirdly identifying with this for a reason. Maybe you should try to just uh, emulate this lack of order because yeah, yeah. And it seems like like um, when we have like attachment to like certain outcomes. You know, that's when we think like it's the overimportance of grandiosity, mm-hmm. or like the overimportance of ourselves and our, in our process. And then remembering that, you know, we are, we're a piece of the larger puzzle. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were mentioning a little bit about this and, and your answers to, uh, like how your realization of, uh, or your, or your, um, kind of brushing against the, the ideas of nihilism and mm-hmm. all this kind of nihilism and all this kind of stuff and how oh, yeah. that kind of can help alleviate some of the stress of like, yeah. No, yeah, I talked a little bit about that, yeah. Oh, when I was in high school, I, w- I don't think I would like myself in high school if I met her now. She was, uh, I was um, very much, what's the word without sounding like rude to the cohort. I was very much raised in a Christian household that um, I didn't really question anything, but I also really relied on it to feel safe. Mm. And, um, you know, when you grow up and you start to realize that your parents don't know everything mm. and that's, and how you process that really, uh, I think forms the the path that you'll go down of uh, what you find interesting. But there was this one teacher um, in my high school who was teaching like existentialism and uh, all of these things that had to do with like, time's not real. Uh, nothing matters. And I'd be like, I do matter. And time literally is real. There is a tomorrow and there's a yesterday. And it just, I wouldn't, I just did not understand it. And then the more that I, uh, you know, continued to grow into myself and go through things that people have to go through. I look back at my high school self and like very, I was very type A, not type A, but very reliant on order mm. and uh, having somebody tell me what was, what was going on. I felt safe knowing like, all right, I don't know stuff, but somebody does. Yeah. But as I've gone older, I'm like, okay, nobody knows anything. And that's really cool because if you're, if there's no, uh, there's no dogma to, to sit in and feel safe in. That means you can do literally whatever you want and you can make whatever you want. Um, I think something I've written down uh, is like, I am so insignificant and therefore limitless. Um, it's like uh, sub- submitting to the sublime of like accepting that there is so much nothing and therefore there's like, we are, we are everything. You can mm. just do whatever. 
And uh, that's what art is, I think. It's just coping with the, the mania. <laughs> yeah. One of the things I hear is that uh, I think one of the workshops I took was about how phenomena has no meaning, but, that we, but it's meaningless that it's meaningless. So mm-hmm. we kind of get, we kind of, from ourselves, from our own depths of our psyche, we're like assigning meaning to things. Mm-hmm. So therefore, it's like what we see outside is really a reflection of what mm-hmm. is inside us, yeah. you know? Was, yeah. It was a Fernando Pazoa that said uh, something like, um, we're living two lives all the time, like the we're, your dream state and your waking state, and mm-hmm. uh, the, they're both going on at the same time. You just can't see the other. And I forget what was what he's like, just like you can't see the stars during the daytime because the sky is too bright. You can't see what's going on in your dreams, but that's your subconscious interpreting things. And so... Uh, poetry kind of is like um, not a exorcism because that sounds scary, but it's <laughs> literally summoning your dream works of like yeah. what's going on in your brain. And that's why with mythology and everything, it's um, uh, that's why mythology and psychoanalysis are so hand in hand because it's the archetypes that everybody has like subtle connections that are similar to each other. And that's why people can relate to poets and not have the same experiences because there's something in there that is consistent. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. And also we think about like the autonomy of these, uh, of these ideas, mm-hmm. like how, like almost like spiritism or mm-hmm. something like that. Like they have their own spirit, they have their own um, kind of consciousness mm-hmm. and that they are kind of independent of ourselves. So these ideas, all these psyches, you know, like the underworld or the overworld, mm-hmm. uh, all this kind of thing and all these different, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Like how, like, like spirits are contacting us rather than just like ideas. Like we have, like I'm having the idea is one perspective. Another mm-hmm. perspective, the muse is coming in, mm-hmm. and the and the spirit is coming to to visit us. To, uh, the muses. Yeah. <laughs> I love I love the concept of the muses. Yeah, uh, just because anything with um with mythology and relating the arts, um, is, they used to say like the poets like they are not uh, writing the words. It's just the the outer source that's coming in and influencing them. But um, when it comes to these kinds of things with like all the Greek gods, etc., I just think it's a giant metaphor for the way that your brain understands itself. Mm. And um, there's the storylines that go on in those in those um, mythologies are um, kind of like blueprints for experiences and how you uh, process um, rites of passage of becoming yourself and like self actualization. Um, I wrote uh, one of my poems, one of my favorite poems that I've written was is called C-Section. Mm. And uh, if you if you pay attention to <laughs> the map of Hades, it is scarily uh, parallel to the human female reproductive anatomy. Yeah. You, you yeah. got to you got to cross a moat. You got to enter a cave. Yeah. And then <laughs> there's a three headed yeah. dog <laughs> that you got to get past and be nice to it. <laughs> and then there's like three different avenues that you could go, which are represented of, uh, of the ovaries. And then the palace of Hades is right on top yeah. where, where the, the fun part would be. And yeah, so the tunnels where the hero has to like find himself. It's yeah. like the going through it part. And so like, that's why every single, um, kind of a heroic story has some sort of not every single but has some sort of like birthing metaphor of like you fall into a water and you come you have a new realization about yourself it's like a cleansing of this and you go through something and then you become out a new person Mm. um i think that's what when i first saw you today i was like have you grown have you changed are you a new new person how many (laughs) how many waters have you befallen (laughs) right (laughs) well well, let's flip that back on you a little bit of you're mentioning of pushing through fear and, mm-hmm. and, and 
you know, can you talk about maybe a couple events in your life where you you took that uh, to heart and have pushed through fear to mm. become? Because um, I, I I I balance it out often with like there's like the stage me and then there's like the off stage me, mm-hmm. but gradually those two have met and there's been a blurring of those where the confidence that I bring to even on stage I am able to bring to in life or if we talk about poetically to be able to live poetically as opposed to just be a poet when you're writing or when you're performing poetry mm-hmm. um, but speak I guess a little bit of some times when you push through fear um, as well as that kind of on stage off stage uh, okay. dichotomy what I'm doing right now is I'm trying to organize the tabs of how I'm gonna mm-hmm. figure yeah. out how I'll say this without rambling in circles as i did um, with my question no i understand uh, but that's the thing is having adhd it's just all poets are adhd <laughs> yeah. let's just accept that about ourselves um let's see when i graduated from my undergrad i um did not know what i was going to do i was very very anxious about what my plan was and how i'm gonna figure out like how to be the best version of myself and i knew that there was something creative in me lingering that i, I needed to express and um, so I was like, oh, let's just do the most cliche thing I can possibly do. Just impulsively move to New York without a job and then we'll see what happens. Uh, that was a very bad idea. I lived in Times Square. I um, lived without uh, windows. I was in a basement apartment. And I'd say that was, uh, you know, my descent into the underworld. If you can back into that. Yeah. But uh, looking back at that, I was so miserable um, because like, I, I, I got a personal training job just to to kind of make ends meet even that didn't really even make ends meet i dipped into my savings aggressively um what was the impulse for that for that initially i did karate as a child i got kicked out of ballet when i was four because uh i had too much energy (laughs) (laughs) the teacher said to my mom i don't think this is your daughter's sport i think that maybe something with a little bit more uh (laughs) fervor might be her, her her jam and so when I walked into a gym and I was like, I have a black belt. Will you give me money? <laughs> <laughs> and it was just like the side gig that, but that because of that, I was so anxious all the time. I needed to have um, some place to feel like a catharsis or a community. And that's where I started digging into like the poetry world of, of New York. And that's when I just happened to walk into the Bowery Poetry Club. And I was like, I live it here and I'm never leaving. <laughs> and I just kept showing up until, um, the Julius, the intern manager, was like, "Do you want to intern? Because you're here anyway. <laughs> you're doing what everybody else is doing." And I was like, "Okay." But um, I really, I figured out who I was there based on like how beautifully weird everybody was there, and seeing how brave everybody was getting up on stage. When people say like, "Oh, I could never do that," I'm like, "Well, spoken word poetry is different than public speaking i would argue because it is just so blatantly shameless and beautiful there's just this underlying um acceptance and understanding among everybody that like whoever's up there we love you (laughs) like the snaps are so (laughs) so important to my mental health is the snaps and and in uh, non-poetry situations now when I'm like talking to people I'll still snap and they think I'm like being like hurry up and I'm like no I'm I love you (laughs) (laughs) so uh yeah getting into the spoken word community was definitely uh it sparked something in me that I met a neutral version of myself of how to um because I'm extremely introverted I don't know if that's that's evident or but Anybody who's met me in the poetry community is like, no, you're not. You are yeah. a little social butterfly. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> um, my boyfriend uh, 
makes fun of me because if we're in a in a area with like people that are also as uh creative or as open i will i will just mirror whatever energy is is presented to me and so at this um this wedding we just went to this past weekend every person that came in the room i'd be like hi like wagging my tail at them. <laughs> uh-huh. He's like, you are not an introvert. And I'm like, uh-huh. you have no idea. <laughs> but it's, it's really interesting how dynamics like that can, can have an influence on people. And I love watching uh, people walk into a community like that, especially when a new person would walk into Bowery and they wouldn't be talking to anybody and slowly watching them unfold yeah. and like become the beautiful flower that they are. <laughs> yeah. And be uh, open about it. It was just the uh. most satisfying thing that made me realize what I want to do with my life forever. (laughs) (laughs) I really liked, uh, you know, discovering oneself, discovering the true self, becoming the true idea of oneself, you know, like really embodying like your, your, um, your true self and discovering the the layers to it. Mm -hmm. I think is what I'm getting also out of that. And, uh, and like, and you were talking a little bit about otherness Mm -hmm. in your answers, like how, Sometimes we discover ourselves as being like the other or the other. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the relationship between self and other mm-hmm. is something that's very interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah. So otherness has been uh, very much something I've been interested in before I even got into the poetry world. So when I was doing my, my undergrad in psych, I always found myself doing my research on like in-group and out-group bias yeah. and like how people feel safe in an environment where they feel like they have a cohesive bond with everybody around them automatically like greek life i was in a sorority Mm. and uh i just i didn't really understand why it it was necessary but it was especially in a big school like maryland and um i started to notice within the greek world not just the greek world but just in college life in general that i really really hated when somebody would walk in a room and not everybody would say hi to them or Mm. and it, it just struck something in me that was triggering. And I realized like when I was a kid, I was also just like the ADD child that would go and pick rocks and, yeah, you know, and make little bouquets of weeds and stuff. And some people uh, liked me, some people didn't. And I would really not like when somebody didn't like me. And I, I think that's maybe why I ended up getting put in karate. Uh-huh. <laughs> such a passionate little child. But um, being able to figure out over time how to, love that part of yourself that feels othered and how to accept it and find cohort that is equally as othered but not the same shade of gray and just be like hey we are just a beautiful little rainbow of weirdos if i don't yeah weirdo is the most mm-hmm. positive thing i can tell someone that they are <laughs> i always embrace the inner weirdo too yeah, yeah. from, from weird al yankovic on just of you know course. it's a yeah. positive word yeah if, some, if i'm like you're a weirdo and they're like <laughs> i'm like no no you don't understand that was a compliment like i love uh-huh. you and <laughs> yeah so why don't you get a chance to listen to some of your poetry yeah uh, i'd love to hear i'd love to hear some of that yeah um i could read uh the c-section one because yeah. i feel like yeah that would be the most, it. most relevant to what i was just talking about yeah Let's see if it'll okay um, I have it up right here. Okay, this is called C-section. I'm thinking about investing in a cactus. I want to be a plant parent. My friends post photos of their babies every morning perched by smudgel's windows. I had a succulent once named Kevin. I should have known he wouldn't be safe. My cats ripped him to shreds. For two weeks, I found bits of Kevin's body everywhere, under the couch, in my sock drawer, behind the fridge. I traveled no tunnel into this world. The doctor pulled me from my mother's sliced belly with her insides waiting patiently to be placed back into their home. 
When I'm sad, I play The Sims in my head and decorate my future library. I have a giant window overlooking a field of poppies I'm not in charge of keeping alive. My circular desk is surrounded by bookshelves instead of walls, and I paint a mural on my ceiling of Mother Mary with an apple in her mouth and the Cheshire cat smiling on her shoulders. I'm already mad at my kids for sneaking into Mommy's room. They rearranged my carefully customized disorder, and I am furious. I was born with a full head of dark brown hair, blue eyes that never tinted away from themselves, and lips pursed kissing the air as if already contemplating how they were supposed to move. I used to live in a basement with no access to the outside world. I could pretend the clocks upstairs read whatever the whatever hour I felt safest in. My circadian rhythm forgot its name, and vitamin D deficiency screened randomly when I was asleep. In Greek mythology, the map of Hades is parallel in structure to human female reproductive anatomy. The birth canal is a cave through which the heroes have to find themselves. It's too late for me to go back and retrieve the hope I left inside the womb. Pandora's jar was sewn back up. I wonder what I'll choose to save upon waking to fire consuming my bedroom. Which portions of myself I'll shove into these pockets before light so quickly switches from dreamscape to daytime. I really wish I wanted to rest, but I'm afraid of everything changing behind my closed lids. In second grade, I caught a wasp in the corner of my eye, but then it flew from my view. It was by the window, and then it wasn't. I rolled my neck into an itch on the base of my skull, and now the stinger's imprint infinitely sizzles. The numbers swirl back from 12 to show their cards through my curtains cracked, and I am still not tired. I take out my phone to pass the time and scroll through photos of my friends spraying water onto soft leaves they nurture so tenderly. My cats lay with me and rhythmically dig their claws into my skin to let me know it's time for me to feed them breakfast. Scene. Thank you, thank you. Shout out Spoke to the friends. I, I, I'm going to do a, a thumb roll as opposed to a drum roll. Snaps uh, <laughs> on that. Because, yeah, even when you, you had described uh, it being about the, the, the metaphor at top, it, there's so much more that, mm-hmm. that, that it also relates into, starting with plants, uh, which, which uh, that has been a number one yeah. <laughs> protecting through through. I had a the plant demic, uh, just the plant demic. Of, of, <laughs> yeah. you know, of, of helping with mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, just everywhere that you kind of go with that, you know, mm-hmm. where you're drawing from from so many so many different areas. Um, so thank you, C set C C C section. You know, when they cut open. And then no, take I was I was stuff. a C section. Yeah, my mom. Oh, yeah, maybe that, that's, that, that correlates that, with why that, we're similar in some ways. Maybe. Uh, <laughs> Uh, C-section changed to an E-section or something um, with an extra incision. What is your brain? (laughs) Um, Yeah, yeah. E equals C-section or something. Um, So yeah, I'm just spiraling off of it. you got to process that. Um, I'm processing off of it. Um, So this, just take us through, this was written during pandemic or this was... That was one of my MFA poems, actually. um, So uh, my professor at the time suggested that we take an old piece that we hated, like all the stuff I wrote in high school, I just is garbage. And so I um, took one of those old poems and um, the prompt was to just write the opposite line for each one. So like read what that line's trying to say and then just write the opposite of it. Mm. And it's somehow that just actualized itself. Um, I think that the original poem had nothing to do with um, what it ended up being about. It was like something about... uh, honestly something i think about my virginity because i was very annoying about my virginity in high school i would say that i was i was waiting till marriage and like really make sure that people knew it upon <laughs> one first meeting me yeah and uh i didn't um but it something about poetry being able to to manifest a change in the self over time just through a prompt 
and being able to say like this is how i've changed literally saying the opposite of who i was with just like language is it's like a magic trick to me to be able to um it's it's like a it's like a resume almost but in a, a formatted palatable uh tone if that makes sense does that mm. make sense Palatable, palatable more so than palatable palatable like p-a-l-e-t-t-e-a-b-l-e yeah <laughs> it's a palatable resume uh-huh. whereas which kind of like that but you you said your your poetry from high school was garbage in the pejorative but i was thinking more of like recycled trash uh, yeah. of like you're taking that uh, and then yeah. you're kind of shaping it over time yeah. to make because uh, your those experiences are still forming you know mm-hmm. the, the stuff that yeah. Um, but but you know, thinking on that, you know, you you mentioned something about talent and you know, like mm-hmm. like your belief that uh, talent doesn't exist almost that everybody has within them the ability at least to be creative. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you stand that there's I I would say a spectrum of creativity even or just some people are a aspect of their creativity they're they're disconnected with. I think that you're it's it's nurture nature what is it uh, it's nurture via nature nature via nurture it's bidirectional and synergistic does that make sense yeah. they're uh, mm-hmm. they're not mutually exclusive they are a they're a little team a little uh, infinity sign um mm. I think that some people can go through some stuff and be put into um a life situation where they don't have time to actually ask their inner child what they want um, what is the, is, um, is it Ann Carson talks about, uh, relationship between, uh, written language and, um, visual art and like it's connected by, uh, Eros energy or like what is the erotic. And I know that that has much more of like a, like a sensual undertone in these days, but it's literally the, the drive by which you, uh, express yourself. And so um, desire being the literally the verb by which you actualize what you want. And so um, what you mentioned about uh, like garbage upcycled trash with my with my visual art that mm-hmm. I create alongside with my poems, I like to use whatever materials I can find, yeah. whether it be like the when you finish a bunch of stickers and you have just the empty the empty spine of what used to mm-hmm. be there. You I used to drive my mom crazy being like, I'm keeping that. I'm going to use it. Yeah. And uh, when I didn't have anything to write or I didn't know what I wanted to, to make, I would just stare and be like, all right, I want this to be here now. I don't know why, I just do. And sometimes I would rip apart a piece just because I didn't like it anymore and just scatter it around, kind of like we were talking about with Mother Nature. It's just, mm. it's all a big ecosystem. They're all related to everything. And so um, uh, when I don't have anything to, to say to a person, a lot of times when we're doodling and stuff, if we have like a piece of trash somewhere, we'll just put it on the page, doodle around it. It's, it's you just oh, interact with all of right. the tangible substances that you have. Mm-hmm. If there's nothing that you can really quite hold on to that is abstract yet, and uh, it all makes sense eventually, maybe. Hey, sense I, is an idea, it right? Kind of right. makes, makes me think of this uh, contemporary art. How you know the it's a lot of times there's a, a deep psychic understanding for the artist, mm-hmm. you know, a deep psychic meaning for the artist. But then the reviewer comes in and it's like they don't always understand mm-hmm. exactly where or the contextually. So that's sometimes, sometimes that can be a little frustrating. But what is your way around that? Or what is your way? Uh, what are some techniques you use to kind of help? Like, do you, or do you feel like the, the, the list, the listener or the, the, or the receiver's 
like understanding how do they how do they process in generally speaking and mm. yeah one of my favorite things to do with people like when i'm showing them my artwork is just to see what they see in it yeah kind of like a rorschach test but like mm-hmm. much less uh professional yeah uh, like uh, my grandmother was like, i see a lie in there i'm like that's a bunch of squiggles Bob. <laughs> i don't know i don't know what that yeah. was but then it kind of reveals what their mood is also like what they see in things kind of again yeah. with the, the rorschach thing of like if you see uh, a bunch of bees instead of uh, glitter or something like that, like that's clearly some sort of latent energy that's that's hanging out there. But um, I also don't think art needs to be gotten all the time. Mm. If there's if there's a resonant feeling that if it makes you feel uncomfortable, that's a feeling. If there's something that you if it makes you feel excited or calm or anything, um, it doesn't have to be pleasant. <laughs> Mm. Um, I think that there's a weird thing in society right now that they expect artwork to make them feel good, but it, it, that is a, what's the word? I'm not going to try to think of the word because I can't, but that's a construct that I think, uh, needs to be not addressed, but maybe just get people to, um, appreciate art for being the mode by which language can just, uh, slip through the cracks and be communicated without having to be turned up on a volume does that make sense yeah totally totally we had a few guests come on and talk about like light supremacy and all Mm -hmm. this kind of thing and talk about how like the the overwhelming need for like um focusing on the positive Mm -hmm. like focusing on oh uh, light and shine light Mm -hmm. and love all Mm -hmm. this kind of thing and instead and and neglecting Mm -hmm. the processes that happen underneath Mm -hmm. neglecting the the needed processes that happening Mm -hmm. the things that you bury will grow yeah exactly exactly Yeah, yeah if you if you keep putting stuff under a rug it's not going to be a very pleasant rug to walk on anymore yeah. and uh literally seeds are meant to be put into the ground but then it's going to get a lot bigger mm. and so that's the whole thing it's like a what catharsis to me uh, to me feels like with making art is like popping an emotional pimple of uh, you gotta give it a place to sit and just be there and uh the whole love and light thing i'm sure that um there there is a space for it that i'm sure the people will need it if it's if it's a balancing act like a reaction formation of if they're going through something that's very dark and that they're very aware of it the the very clear cut happy is something that could benefit them but having art only be oh this is so great if you're not feeling that it's like you other yourself you're mm. like all right this doesn't belong to me and i don't know why and then you start to judge yourself mm. and maybe that is what causes somebody to feel a negative emotion in response to a positive piece of art and there's there's people with dark humor there's a reason why yeah <laughs> it's, right it's a yeah but, but what's to be said if two people are staring at the same thing and they both have the same experience with it um or is that is that possible i mean because sometimes yeah you are seeing eye to eye you're getting the same thing and that's a beautiful moment when two people yeah. can can experience it. it doesn't always happen you can't expect it to happen yeah but occasionally your squiggles they see what you see um you know know those people are linked in any way um i I was going to flip it also you're talking about growth and the rug metaphor i love that you just uh, described but you were um i i know that you worked in cryotherapy Mm -hmm. uh for a while and i'm thinking the flip side of, of growth too is sometimes stasis or where people don't grow where they're frozen in time where i guess like you know they don't acknowledge and and whether it's privilege or some other thing that allows them to kind of stay in the same mm-hmm. area. Uh, t- 
talk about it, how you know you got into guess cryotherapy, but also that idea of kind of running in place or the idea of being frozen in time. Mm-hmm. Oh, cryotherapy. I forgot completely right. to mention that. Yeah, I was doing personal training and then also do you know what cryotherapy is? Uh I don't know. It's it's like a it's a, kind of like a sauna, but very cold. Oh. Um it's so the, in summary, it's um people come in for like inflammation or it basically makes your body think it's dying. So you yeah. go in, it's, it's uh, vaporized nitrogen. So you go into this little chamber and then it goes down to like what negative 160 Celsius. Yeah. I can't do math. I can't, I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit uh. right now, but um, you're in there for three minutes. It makes uh, all your blood leave your extremities and go to your organs, refreshes mm. all the oxygen. And then uh, obviously goes back to your origin organs uh, or extremities or else, you know, bodies on Mount Everest. That's yeah. why they lose all their limbs first because yeah. all the blood to protect yourself. Yeah. Um, and then your body's like super excited after because it's like, oh, I'm not dead. And then it sends out all the happy endorphins. So that's why a lot of people with like depression and anxiety would come in mm. um, as prescribed or suggested by therapists of just getting that natural dose of uh, your body being reminded that it's alive, <laughs> mm. quite literally. Um, so yeah, that actually ended up being a lot in my, I remember you did write a poem that um, was inspired by that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I loved Project. that. It's something about, it's kind of like the the rebirth metaphor but mm-hmm. a lot more vigorous <laughs> yeah it's and it's a it's a mental challenge of kind of like when i was saying about writing about my my grandmother after she passed it's you're forcing yourself to sit there in this uh it's not painful but uncomfortable environment knowing that it's good for you that it's going to have a positive outcome after mm. of uh this emotional or a uh, physical pimple will be popped and it'll be smoothened over <laughs> Yeah, interesting, interesting. Uh, so my listeners, this is the Truth to Power Show and Ready for Brooklyn. I'm your host, Fijar Nathan. I'm here with Scott Raven and Kara Stevens. Um, so also I want to get into a little bit of the literary influences, like uh, mm-hmm. like wh- wh- what what books or what uh, mm-hmm. writers have shaped you mm-hmm. and over the years and how that's changed over the years, yeah, mm-hmm. or artists or anything like that. Or um, yeah, Let's see. So again, back in high school, I read Dracula, hated it. Um, but as I've gotten older and I read it a second time in college and read it a second time or a third time after graduating, noticing yeah. the things that you notice over time and having disagreements with yourself in the margins, yeah. and annotating it. I think that's one of my favorite things to do. Um, so Bram Stoker is uh, actually, um, Dracula is a very feminist novel if you read it uh, mm. between the lines of the things like that. Um, and also, if you don't realize that it's a book about vampires it's a very sexual novel it's yeah. like you're like this is porn yeah. i wrote uh an essay in college about uh how like the rising action or the the top plot was just a metaphor for a blowjob and I got an yeah. so that worked um <laughs> but again with the subtext and the thing like the meaning without the blatant meaning is uh one of my favorite things um in my thesis for my mfa i related bram stoker's uh dracula to fernando pessoa's uh the book of disquiet uh. um so having the the linearity being emphasized by uh, numbered entries. So Dracula is um, formatted by letters and journal entries and having the dates on them. And so it creates a sense of uh, consistency for the reader. And then Fernando Pessoa, he just has numbered entries that have really no meaning whatsoever, but it has, it creates a sense of unity and carries the momentum to, to read. Fernando Pessoa has... Uh, he publishes or published because he's, he's super dead. He published his work uh, under different names, and he would literally create different personas 
um, and create a whole back background for them and literally identified with them. So I don't know if that's like borderline personality disorder, just <laughs> undiagnosed via history. But I thought that that was just a very, very uh, interesting slash inspirational way that a writer could interact with the world of like, um, it's not disassociation. It's like a selflessness that, uh, because it's, it's easy for a writer to become, uh, very writing is very egotistical is very self absorption. And then also like, look at me. I think the way that he went about publishing his work was very, uh, is, is unique. It's, it's able to say, this is not me. It is me, but it's not at all. This is, somebody else that maybe somebody else can relate to a lot more because he he only had one fem, uh, woman character though which i thought that was actually nice because he's a man so he doesn't understand that much of the the woman situation but uh that's a whole other tangent that i won't try to go into um let's see and then, uh along with the numbered entries uh, maggie nelson was one of my biggest influences she was uh have you ever read bluets um it's my my brother's girlfriend originally got it for herself because yeah. she was like, I'm going to start reading poetry. And uh, uh-huh. she opened it, read the first two pages, and she was like, nope, Kira, here you go. <laughs> <laughs> and because of that, uh, I ended up, I'm pretty sure that's like one of the puzzle pieces that led me to go into grad school was reading yeah. Maggie Nelson's work. Um, very cerebral, very uh, self-reflective, but also exiting the self mm. of... Um, objective observations but also relating the objective to the subjective and mm. again noticing what she noticed and uh it can have like a very academic feel but also very not there's something that um certain writers can do it's like a magic trick again it's yeah kind of like alchemy but literary <laughs> yeah so we have 10 minutes left why don't we listen to one more poem if we can mm. yeah I I, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about we can talk a little bit about your upcoming book let's see um yeah. Would you rather do one th- from the book, or I could read the first thing I ever read at Bowery? Uh, maybe from the book, yeah. So then people yeah, we'll tie it into that. And yeah. Noted. So the vibe of uh, this book ended up being very much different from my work that I would read at Bowery, just basically because, you know, in pandemic especially, I'm pretty sure most poets ended up being a lot more morose and uh, <laughs> dramatic. Um, so let's see. In the book, there is, uh, why don't we do... Small talk. This is like one of the more um, lighthearted ones, but it's still... Okay, so this is called Small Talk. Um, and just a sideline that the first line is a very true story. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that I, That's one of my uh, opening lines of Small Talk with like a new co-worker. <laughs> anyway, um, my printer's name is Brandon. He's usually line leading my list of favorite things. I also have a list of unfavorite things. Each item on it is ranked equal and opposite to Brandon. Wet bread is the caboose today and every other Wednesday. Behind Brandon is a podcast trapped inside an empty pill bottle. I self-soothe as I consume concepts like cosmic connective tissue and luminosity as they highlight all of the ways humans have been wrong regarding the weight of a star. Early in the morning, the smell of freshly cut grass just hits different. My nostrils dig the chlorophyllic swirls, green phantoms of beheaded buds. My footprints in single file follow my father's lead as he pushes the lawnmower to slice a path before us both. I forgot everybody is biodegradable for a second. A terrifying kind of beautiful is Mother Earth's digestive system. She's an hourglass with sticky soil. She flips us up and around ourselves like a cyclic sweep. 
a cold switch bounce from design to decay above all the things we take for granted until the clock runs out of space for us. Zeno probably had sick running shoes. I imagine a child with an identically blind passion as the moon who snuck too close to Saturn and a grin reserved for marathon runners and mothers. Icarus broke through the Roche ribbon and the dog star watched indifferently. Fiction is an epidemic of innocent heels slipping into daddy's boots and racing into blazing nothingness under the maleficent guise of fate. Upon reaching the point at which Phaethon knows he's driven into death, the screeches of the chariot's grinding gears harmonize with his muffled scream. Yeah. <laughs> Yay. So it comes, uh, starts lighthearted and then uh, very dark very quickly. <laughs> right. And, and both pieces, I believe, start with anthropomorphizing uh, objects. Yeah, or, I, love, or, or I love naming things. Right, right. Yeah. So first was a printer, but then it was a plant, which is a living thing. Yeah. And, and yeah. I like doing yeah. that too. But mm-hmm. but that, it's it fascinates me as a way into a poem of kind of like, mm-hmm. all right, uh, I'm going to share like i have a private relationship with something that maybe not somebody else has and it might harken back to kind of childhood when you have kind of those moments Mm -hmm. with action figures or whatever gets you into a zone to then like shoot out and then go worldly and plant like a little flower opening right right like i just like that as an on-ramp to to pieces great that's um off of the new book that you can talk a little bit about so that's small talk, but from, uh, so the, uh, the book is called highly noted and other poems. So, um, highly noted is a series of poems that I wrote in, uh, my MFA program. So I took four of that series to, to open the book with. So basically the, the intention of the book leading with that, um, series, they're kind of like silly of, uh, things that I wrote down in college that, uh, people said when they were high that yeah. so highly noted, haha, <laughs> brunch. And uh, mm-hmm. and it kind of sets the reader up thinking that this is going to be a very lighthearted text and then slowly and then very quickly becomes much more um, uh, introspective and uh, lightheartedly dark, if that makes sense. But, yeah. Mm. And so, um, yeah, so it starts with highly noted and then it um, kind of dives into more of like um, – kind of coping with my grandmother's loss and like imagining myself as a mother and being able to take care of things and like comparing of if I will be able to nurture something uh, as well as I was nurtured and then uh, kind of coping with um, how I relate myself to my mental illness and um, like other influences that I've had. I'll bring in literary influences kind of interspersed throughout it. And then um, the last book, poem not the second to last is called archival love so i took um an essay that i wrote in college that was about like my first like three relationships like one from like middle school to high school to the college one and i did an erasure of the of the um of the essay and if you don't know what an erasure is it's like if you take a book and just circle words in it and you find a poem within the words available mm. so um i ended up writing uh like a, it was like a four-page, uh, and what's the word? It's not couplets, tertiates, tercets. I don't know. Or triplets, or yeah, triplets, yeah. little baby lines. Um, of uh-huh. of uh, an organized piece from that. So kind of the again the subtext to be able to to extract the what you notice in your past experiences. Mm. Um, so yeah, the format of the book is like a a big version, the macro of the all the little micro organizations of the 
Oh. Yeah, you had me at, at highly noted. Wait, I, so I'm, I'm piecing together. Highly noted, um, this is things you've overheard or, or you were witness to people sharing high, but were you also high when you're taking them in? So it's through that lens. Sometimes, sometimes may it's like it's the bonding experience, but also it kind of ended up being like a, an archive of like all the people that I spent like genuine time with a lot of times it wouldn't be actually, they weren't high, but it would be, it was like, Oh, highly noted. Like, great. And I look back on it. It's like a, a chronological list of like, I connected with these people and it Mm -hmm. kind of, it primes memories of like positivity and so among all of the, the dark things that I wrote in college, I also have these positive associations with, and you can kind of cherry pick the, the pleasant and uh, the things that you want to hold on to from that time period, even right. if yeah. overall you look at it like it was dark. Um, and then speaking of other notes, uh, you know, you're highly verbal as well as visual artist. Mm-hmm. Do you have any connection to music or what mm-hmm. is maybe a relationship to that? Uh, I've been singing since I was a kid. I went to... Um, a an arts middle school for uh vocal uh ended up leaving because i got bullied but um not like it's it's, it was like it was gentle bullying you know girls are mean kind of like pre-k pre-k kids they're also mean they're blatantly honest and then once they get to middle school they're like honed in there but that's beside the point um and now these days with my writing uh poetry my dad's like very heavily into blues so we've been um kind of collecting some some phrases and lines that I've written that he's like, that would make a great blues song Mm. and kind of just we're we're crafting it slowly. Um, And then a subtle plug, my, one of my best friends, his name is Demetri Grievous. He's uh, an amazing artist. He self-taught everything. And he is, um, he's my, my music bestie. And he's been very much encouraging me to, to record some of the songs that I've written. So we've started a couple of projects, just haven't finished them, but I will one day. Awesome. As, uh, I, as we start to close and tell people, Ready for Brooklyn, this has been Ready for Brooklyn. Ready for Brooklyn's mission is to uh, provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. So we rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every doll helps stay on the air and continues to can help us continue the work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so contributions are tax deductible. Please donate at readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. If you're an Amazon shopper, Go to Amazon, uh, Amazon, go to smile.amazon.com or readyforbrooklyn.org slash Amazon and register ready for Brooklyn under the Amazon Smile Charity. If you're listening to this when you're in front of your computer, please free yourself up by downloading our mobile apps or iPhone or Android. Um, also, if you'd like to subscribe to our monthly newsletter, go to readyforbrooklyn.org slash newsletter. Okay. We have about a minute left. So last, uh, last stories. Yay. I don't know. <laughs> Last yeah. tales or, but I, we, you know, I'm sure you've acquired some new fans from, from this, uh, <laughs> where they can find some more of your work, uh, and when that book is coming out, they can look out for, um, and as well as any thoughts you would like to you know, express. Of course. Uh, so my book, the highly noted, uh, the press that is coming from is called Lille press, like the French, the French pastry, mm-hmm. uh, L I L L E T. So it's just lillepress.com. Um, and then, so the release date is, objectively january 22 and so just like on my social media uh updates on that uh on instagram i'm at words number four food like food for thought get it Uh aha 